Although American Civil War and UK history is a hobby, there are small costs associated with running a podcast. So if you enjoy our content, please support the show. You can do this by pressing the support the show button or pressing on the link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you for your continued support. Daz, American Civil War and UK history. Cheers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Civil War and UK History channel on YouTube. Don't forget, we're also on Facebook and Instagram, so go and give them a look. The links will be down below in the descriptions. Also, there's lots of great things coming up. There's lots of great things on the page. I'll try and do at least two posts a day. Um, not just American Civil War, but uh, UK history as well. So, yeah, um, what are we here for today? So it is the 6th of April. And 159 years ago today was the first day of the Battle of Shiloh. And I am going to try and explain it to you. So here goes nothing. So the Battle of Shiloh or of Pittsburgh Landing, depending on where you're from, was the first major battle in the Western theater between the combined Union armies of the Tennessee and the Ohio. Command of the Tennessee was Major General Ulysses S. Grant and the Ohio under the command of Major General Don Carlos Buell. Confederate Army of the Mississippi under the command of General Albert Sidney Johnson and second in command was P.G.T. Beauregard. Grant and Buell up to this point had both respectively won great victories. Firstly, Grant had won a great victory at Fort Henry and then a little bit later on Fort Donelson. This happened in February of 1862. And of course, Buell had captured Nashville. And of course, Fort Donelson is where Grant gets his famous nickname from, Unconditional Surrender Grant. The South was now open and in the spring, Grant and the Army of the Tennessee could start a campaign into the heart of the Confederacy. So Grant orders C.F. Smith down the Tennessee River to scout an area known as Pittsburgh Landing and also to try and discover the whereabouts of the Confederate Army, which was reported to be massing around a railroad junction called Corinth, Mississippi. C.F. Smith communicated back to Grant that Pittsburgh Landing was a good area for the Union to launch an attack on Corinth, as Corinth was their main objective. Now, why was Corinth so important? Well, it's a railway junction and there's two lines that meet there. You have the Mobile in Ohio and you have the Memphis and Charleston. And obviously, these railroads are so important. It's a way of moving food, men, ammunition, and one line goes into the heart of the South. So the, if the Union get hold of this line, they will have a base of supply to venture further into the Confederacy. Also, the Memphis and Charleston goes west to east, but most importantly, goes into the east of the Confederacy. And again, you know, the Confederacy rely on this line heavily. They rely on both lines for supplies. Without these lines and without this town and without this railroad junction, the Confederacy are gonna struggle in Tennessee. The Union also settle 
in a town 10 miles from Pittsburgh Landing, and that is the town of Savannah. And this is where Grant will base himself at the Cherry Mansion. Grant's orders from Major General Henry Halleck are not to bring on a general engagement until Buell and his army of the Ohio arrive. Albert Sidney Johnson, on the other hand, knows that Buell was on his way to bolster Grant's army, so he knows he has to act quickly, so he decides to go on the offensive and attack Grant before he can be reinforced by Buell. He says the famous saying, I would fight them if there was a million of them. Let's have a look at the Union, Union Command. So, like I said, Army of the Tennessee under the command of Major General Ulysses S. Grant. And this consists of six divisions on the first day. We have the first division under the command of Major General John A. McClelland. Then you have the second division under Brigadier General W. H. L. Wallace. Third division, Major General Lou Wallace. We'll get on to him in a minute. He plays an important part or not an important part. Um, fourth division, Brigadier General Stephen A. Helbert. One of the most famous guys eventually in the American Civil War. Brigadier General William T. Sherman. And a guy down here who's going to play a pivotal role in this battle. And his name is Major General Benjamin, sorry, Brigadier General Benjamin M. Prentice. Let's move on to Don Carlos Buell's army of the Ohio. And this consists of four divisions. Now, the second division was under the command of Brigadier General Alexander M. McCook. Fourth, Brigadier General William Bull Nelson. And you can see why he's called Bull. He is a big guy. Then we have the 5th Division under Brigadier General Thomas L. Crittenden. And the 6th Division under the command of Brigadier General Thomas J. Wood. But again, the Army of the Ohio has not arrived yet. Not on the battlefield anyway. Let's have a look at the command of the Confederate Army. And again, so Albert Sidney Johnson's newly assembled force, the Army of the Mississippi, and it's sectioned up into corps. So you have the first corps under Major General Leonidas Polk. Second corps, everybody's favourite general, Major General Braxton Bragg. Third corps, Major General William J. Hardy. And you have a combined reserve corps of Brigadier General John C. Breckenridge and Brigadier General John S. Bowen and attached cavalry. Now, just going back to Breckenridge, if you're not familiar with the Civil War, or even if you are, you will know that Breckenridge will play a fairly big part in a couple of the major battles, one being Stones River and two being a battle at Newmarket in 1864. Really interesting story, that. OK, the battle itself. So. The battle. So the morning of April 6, 1862, Johnson's army was deployed for battle, straggling the Corinth Road. The army had spent 
the entire night making a camp in order of battle within two miles of the Union camp near Sherman's headquarters, which was at Shiloh Church. And this is Shiloh Church here. Um, Shiloh, the meaning in Hebrew is place of peace. My goodness, how that's going to be shattered very soon. So I'm going to go back to the 5th of April because Grant sends a message back to Halleck on the night of the 5th of April. And it says this, I have scarcely the faintest idea of an attack, General One, being made upon us, but will be prepared should such a thing take place. So this is important to understand. They don't believe that anything major or there isn't a major force within this vicinity. They still believe that, that yes, there is going to be a battle at some point, but they don't believe it's going to be here. And they don't they don't think that there is a massive force um, on its way to uh, Pittsburgh Landing or Shiloh. So they are quite relaxed about it all. And although there are reports of a lot of skirmishing, they don't believe this. And Sherman is one example of this. So Sherman at Pittsburgh Landing did not believe the Confederates had a major assault force nearby. He discounted the possibility of an attack from the south. Sherman expected that Johnson would eventually attack. So he's not saying they weren't going to attack, but they didn't actually believe what the reports that were coming in. Anyway, a colonel of the 53rd Ohio Infantry warned Sherman that an attack was imminent. The general replied... And this is what he said to this guy. Take your damned regiment back to Ohio. There are no Confederates closer than Corinth. One thing I would like to point out at this, at this point in time is that most troops on both sides were completely green. And if you're new to the Civil War, you might be saying, well, what does green mean? Well, green means they've never been in battle before. And to be a um, veteran, you only have to be in one Civil War battle. And of course... This will also play a major role in how the battle is fought and won, really, in a way, because that you've got complete amateurs. Some of these guys have never even fired their rifle before, or not in anger anyway. So let's move to 3 a.m. in the morning. So at 3 a.m., a colonel, this guy here, if you can see the cursor, of the name of Colonel Everett Peabody, and he is commanding one apprentice's brigades, the 1st Brigade. And he sends out a patrol of around about 250 infantrymen from the 25th Missouri and the 12th Michigan. So the patrol under the command of Major James E. Powell met fire from the Confederates who then fled into the woods. Then this stops and then around 5.15 a.m. they encounter Confederate outpost manned by the 3rd Mississippi. And a spirited fight lasted about an hour. Arriving messengers and the sound of gunfire from the skirmish alerted the nearest Union troops who formed a battle line before the Confederates were able to reach them. However, the Union Army Command did not adequately prepare for an attack on the camps. Now, again, like I said, they didn't believe this was going to happen. So they was so yes, they are surprised, but no, they're not in a way. Um, the, the regiments that are further back in the line would have been surprised. But also, I'd like to point out, I read an account that um, a lot of the green soldiers, um, because leading up to the battle, it was quite damp and it was raining. And they was worried that their rifles were not going to work. So what happened was, is 
they would shoot off their rifles in the woods most mornings. Now, they were told not to do this. Grant did not like this, you know, because, of course, it alerts the enemy where they are and it's going to give away positions. Of course, the enemy knows where they are anyway. But they were, you know, they were worried that their rifles would not work. And again, like I said, they've never shot these in in um, in combat before. So a lot of the guys at actual Pittsburgh Landing or camped further back in line heard the rifle fire in the morning and didn't think anything of it. They just thought it was, oh, yeah, minor skirmish, or it was just people firing off their rifles like they did a couple of days before in the woods. So there you go. Anyway, Prentice is not happy when he learns that Peabody has sent out a patrol without authorization. Remember? Grant is under strict orders, and obviously he's passed that down to his subordinates. You are not to engage the enemy. I do not want a major battle yet. This is Halleck's, obviously, command going to Grant, but Grant is obviously sending this down as well. Okay, so he is outraged of the colonel for provoking a major engagement in violation of Grant's orders, but soon realises he faces an assault by an entire Confederate army and rushed to prepare his men for defence. So... Union forces at Pittsburgh Landing were, later on, about 9am, were either engaged or moving towards the front line. So by 9am, most of the guys are now engaged. It's a full battle. Now, go back a couple of hours. Grant was about 10 miles downriver at Savannah, like I was saying, at the uh, Cherry Mansion. Having breakfast, while he heard the sound of artillery fire, so he's sitting there tucking into his lovely breakfast, whatever he had, you know, just about to cut his sausage. And in the background, he can hear all the commotion or 10 miles down the road. So he leaves his breakfast. And at 7.30 a.m., he gets on his steamer. But before he goes, he sets up a plan. So he would like Lou Wallace, this guy here, and Paul Nelson to also make their way to the battlefield. Now, Paul Nelson is obviously part of um, Don Carlos Buell's army, but he has actually arrived sort of during the night of the of the, the 5th. Now, Lou Wallace was asked to take his command over the other side of the river and to come in on the Union's right and re um, and and take up position on the right. So on the right wing, but he gets lost on the way. And there are lots of accounts of this. There's a lot of name throwing and a lot of blame that goes on to do with this. Um, um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but it's quite interesting. So if you're interested, Google it and have a look because it's quite interesting. Or if you've got a book about it, whatever your preference is. But Ball Nelson is also ordered to move on to Corinth. Um, but he's ordered to move on the other side of the river, on the same side as Savannah. And for some reason, he doesn't do that until the afternoon. So I would imagine that if they've only just got there early hours in the morning, they're probably hungry and tired and they need to refuel. You know, I mean, it's a 10 mile march. I mean, you think 10 miles in a car is nothing to us these days. But you can imagine 10 mile march after you've just been marching all night is probably a bit of a task in it. So you're probably going to want a little seat. So You've got to give Ball Nelson a little bit of, you know, leeway there. And I suspect, you know, although the situation is dire, you know, or it will be. But they hold out in the end anyway, don't they? But anyway, he wouldn't arrive till uh, 
later on that evening as well. Well, Grant gets there. Grant gets to Pittsburgh Landing, and of course, there's absolute mayhem going on. And he arrives and he rides up and down the line, organizing and reassuring his troops. You know, all the come on, boys, let's do this, you know, because they're all scared. You know, now half of these guys have never been in battle before. So the Confederates, the Confederates assault, despite its shortcomings, was ferocious, causing some of the inexperienced and green Union soldiers in Grant's new army to flee to the river for safety. Others fought well, but were forced to withdraw under strong pressure from the Confederates and attempting to form a new defensive line. Many Union regiments fragmented entirely. And this is where Sherman becomes important because yes, some of his guys do run away. But Sherman becomes one of the most important elements. He appears everywhere along his lines, inspiring his raw recruits to resist the initial assaults despite staggering losses on both sides. Now Sherman in the early in the early part of the battle actually receives two wounds, um, minor wounds. He does get shot in the hand, um, but he also has three horses shot from under him during the battle. But Sherman's men fought stubbornly, but Union troops slowly lost ground and fell back behind a position behind Shiloh Church. And this is also a similar, uh, quite close to where McClelland is, and they end up forming their own little defensive line together. They sort of form a line together. Um, the, the two divisions together temporarily uh, stabilise the position overall. However, Johnson's forces make steady progress on rolling up the Union positions one by one. Now, let's move on to the Confederates. So during this charge, the Confederates come across the um, Union camps and many of them throw away their old flintlocks, lock muskets and grab rifles dropped by the Union who are fleeing. And by 11 a.m., the Confederate advance began to slow down due to stiff Union resistance, but also due to disciplinary problems. As the army overran the federal camps, the sight of fresh food still burning on campfires proved too tempting for many hungry Confederates. Now, they started the battle really early in the morning. They're probably hungry. And many broke ranks to pillage and loot the camps. And again, it must have been like Christmas, you know, oh, look, look at this. This put the army on hold until the officers could get them back into line. Johnson himself ended up personally intervening to help prevent the looting and get his army back on track. Riding into the Union camp, he took a single tin cup, raised it in the air and announced, let this be my share of the spoils today, before directing his army back into the battle. We're going to go back to 9am now. So around about 9am, Prentice and WHL Wallace's divisions established and held a position nicknamed the by the Confederates, the Hornet's Nest. And this is named that because the bullets were whizzing around like hornets. The Confederates assaulted the position for several hours rather than simply bypassing it and suffered heavy casualties. Historians estimate of the number of separate charges range from eight to 14. The Union forces to the left and the right of the nest were forced back, making Prentice's position a prominent point in the line. A lot of Confederates were being drawn to this position, by the way. 
Um, the pressure increased, and as time went on, WHL Wallace was mortally wounded whilst attempting to lead a breakout from the Confederate encirclement. Union regiments became completely disorganized as the Confederates, led by Brigadier General Daniel Ruggles, assembled more than 50 cannons into Ruggles' nest, or sorry, Ruggles' battery, and they were all pointing at the Hornet's nest. This was the largest concentration of artillery ever assembled in North America up to this point. And they were blasting the line at close range. The Confederates at this point surrounded the Hornet's Nest and it fell after holding out for seven hours. So a big, big up to Prentice's guys and WHL Wallace's guys. I mean, Christ, you know, they were literally being absolutely slaughtered. Prentice surrendered himself and the remains of his division to the Confederates. A large portion of the Union survivors and estimated 2,400 men were captured, but um, their sacrifice brought time for Grant to establish a final defensive line near Pittsburgh Landing. Whilst dealing with the nest, the Hornet's nest, the South suffered a serious setback. Now, this is a very important part of the Battle of Shiloh. So, they suffer the setback of the death of their commanding general, Albert Sidney Johnson. Now, he had received a report from Breckenridge that one of his brigades was refusing to, to advance against a Union force in the Peach Orchard. So he quickly rushes to the scene and Johnson is able to rally the men to make the charge, leading it personally. And he is mortally wounded at about 2.30 p.m. as he led the attacks on the Union left. Johnson was shot in the right leg behind the knee. Um, determined the wound was insignificant, Johnson continued leading the battle. Now, he had already had um, been shot in this leg before, years ago, and his nerves were no good. So he probably didn't actually really feel anything. Eventually, Johnson's staff members noticed him slumped in his saddle. One of the Tennessee governors, Isham Harris, asked Johnson if he was wounded. And the general replied, yes, and I feel severely or seriously. Earlier in the battle, Johnson had sent personal surgeon to care for wounded Confederate troops and Yankee prisoners. And there were no medical staff at his current location. An aide helped him off his horse and laid him down under the tree, under a tree, then went to fetch his surgeon, but did not apply a tourniquet to Johnson's wound. Now, if he'd have, supplied, if he'd have put this tourniquet on his leg, he probably would have survived. Before the doctor could be found, Johnson bled to death from a torn artery that caused internal bleeding and blood to collect unnoticed in his riding boot. Command then passes to PGT Beauregard, and this is really one of the turning points of the battle. So back to the main battle. So that's happened. Anyway, Union flanks were being pushed back, um, but not decisively. In the face of the advance of Hardy and Polk against the Union right, Sherman and McClelland mounted a fighting retreat in the direction of Pittsburgh Landing. Back over to the other side. Breckenridge's corps had been in reserve. They attacked on the extreme left of the Union line, driving the understrength brigade of Colonel David Stewart and potentially opened a path into the Union rear 
and the Tennessee River. If they cut off that river, the Union have got nowhere to go. They're trapped. However, the Confederates paused to regroup and recover from exhaustion and disorganization, then moved towards the hornet nest. So they got drawn away to the hornet's nest. After the hornet's nest fell, the remnants of the Union line established a solid three mile front around Pittsburgh Landing. And as you can see here, this is that line. Excuse me. Um, extended west from the river and then north up the river road, keeping the approach open for the expected, although belated, arrival of Lew Wallace's division. Sherman commanded the right of the line. McClellan took the center and on the left, the remnants of WHL Wallace's, Hurlbut's and Stewart's men mixed with thousands of stragglers who were cowering on the bluff over the landing. The advance of Buell's army and a brigade of Bull Nelson's division arrived in time to be ferried over and join the left end of the line. The defensive line included a ring of more than 50 cannons and naval guns from the river boats, river gunboats, the timberclads, as they're known, USS Lexington and USS Tyler. A final Confederate charge of two brigades led by Brigadier General Withers attempted to break through the line but was repulsed. Beauregard at this point called off a second attempt after 6 p.m. as the sun set. So the Confederate plan had failed and they had pushed Grant East to a defensive position on the river where he could be reinforced and resupplied. So that was their golden chance. Now, just quickly, I want to read something from uh, Grant's memoirs from 1885, and he describes his experience on the night after the battle. So it says, during the night, rain fell in torrents and our troops were exposed to the storm without shelter. I made my headquarters under a tree a few hundred yards back from the riverbank. My ankle was so much swollen from the fall of my horse the Friday night proceeding and that the bruise was so painful that I could get no rest. The drenching rain would have precluded the possibility of sleep without this additional cause. Some time after midnight, growing restive under the storm and the continuous pain, I moved back to the log house under the bank. This had been taken as a hospital and all night wounded men were being brought in, their wounds dressed, leg or arm amputated, as the case might require and everything being done to save life or alleviate suffering. The sight was more undurable than encountering the enemy's fire. And I returned to the tree, my tree, sorry, in the rain. Now, this is when the famous saying comes. So sometime after midnight, Sherman encountered Grant standing under a tree, sheltering himself from the pouring rain and smoking one of his famous cigars. Whilst considering his losses and planning for the next day, Sherman re remarked, well, General, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And Grant looked up. Yes, he replied, followed by a puff. Yes, lick them tomorrow, though. I love that saying, don't you? Who doesn't love that saying? And uh, let's move back to Beauregard. So Beauregard sent, um, Beauregard sent a telegram to President Davis announcing a complete victory. Hey! He later admitted, I thought that Grant just 
sorry, I thought I had Grant just where I wanted him and couldn't finish him up in the morning. I could finish him up in the morning. Many of his hem were, uh, men were jubilant, having overrun the Union camps and taken thousands of prisoners and tons of supplies. So they really, he really thought he'd won the battle. Grant still had reason to be optimistic. Lou Wallace's 5,800 men minus the two regiments guarding the supplies at Crump's Landing and 15,000 of Don Carlos Buell's army began to arrive that evening. Wallace's division took up a position on the right of the Union line and were in place by 1 a.m. of that morning of the 7th. Sorry, Buell's men were fully on the scene by 4 a.m. in time to turn the tide the next day. To be continued. Anyway, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this video. I have got a second one coming for the 7th of April, 1862. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, don't forget to subscribe. See you again soon.